This is episode 147 with former professional triathlete and Xterra world champ, advisor to the Porsche Human Performance Center and founder of Precision Hydration, Mr. Andy Blow. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and I'm excited that you're here. Here on the podcast, we give you new ideas, tools, and strategies for improving your running. Whether you'd like to reach a new distance, qualify for a certain race, or avoid your next injury, I'll be bringing you the leaders in the fitness industry to help you reach more of your big running goals. From elite runners, performance psychologists, strength experts, coaches, best-selling authors, and physical therapists who can help make our running dreams become a reality. Because as I like to say, knowledge is a competitive advantage. The more you know, the better decisions you'll make about your training. If you're new to the show, we have 146 other episodes, a video channel on YouTube, or our home base, strengthrunning.com where you can see all of our coaching programs, detailed guides on everything from injury prevention to running for beginners to how you can master your mindset and become a more mentally tough runner. I'd also like to thank Naked Nutrition for sponsoring today's episode. I've been using their vanilla whey protein powder recently, and this is hands down the best protein powder I've ever had. It's from grass-fed cows, there's nothing artificial in it, and the flavored protein powders have only three ingredients. You can check them out at nkdnutrition.com, and if you're vegan, they have a pea protein supplement as well. Our guest today is Andy Blow, the founder and CEO of Precision Hydration. Andy is a sports scientist with a degree from the University of Bath, focusing his expertise on sweat, dehydration, and cramping. Andy previously worked as the team sports scientist for the Benetton and Renault Formula One teams and remains an advisor to the Porsche Human Performance Center. An elite-level triathlete in his younger days, Andy has finished in the top 10 of Ironman and Ironman 70.3 races, as well as winning an Xterra world title. And in this conversation, we're doing a deep dive on hydration, covering the nuts and bolts of fluid loss, dehydration, hyponatremia, electrolytes, and how environmental factors affect your hydration needs. I realized that I have never done a podcast episode about hydration in any form, so I wanted to rectify that, and I couldn't think of a better person to speak with than Andy. He comes at the topic from both the perspective of a subject matter expert, but also as an athlete who's dealt with hydration problems his entire athletic career. He's not just a heavy sweater, but he sweats out a lot of sodium, which is a tough combination. So we'll talk more about how to determine your sweat rate, what to do if you're a salty sweater, and a lot more. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Andy Blow. Hey, Andy. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, nice to be here, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I'm excited to talk to you about hydration, which is a topic that I've never covered here on the podcast before, Um, but I think it's time that we covered it in detail. And I'd love to start at the beginning. You are the founder of Precision Hydration. You're a former elite triathlete. He used to work as uh, the team sports scientist for two different Formula One teams. You're still an advisor to the Porsche Human Performance Center. So you're doing some interesting work in uh, performance, more specifically hydration. And I'd love to know what got you started down this path of, of studying hydration? Was it something that was going on with your own personal life or are you just more academically interested in the topic? No, def- definitely personal interest, Jason. I, I've suffered terribly with hydration related problems as an athlete and although I did have an academic interest in sports science and I I trained as a sports scientist and worked as a sports scientist it was it was this was like a real passion project for me because getting my hydration messed up derailed a lot of big races for me over the years because I grew up in the UK where I still live now and obviously although we get a bit of warm to hot weather in the summer most of the year it's pretty cool and pretty temperate and I would do okay in races in cold conditions or cooler conditions but but when i went to kona for the ironman or whenever i went anywhere which was hot and humid i would quite often end up in a real mess and that was kind of what that was the trigger that set me off you know looking at all of this as a subject matter now were you a long course triathlete were you doing ironman distance triathlons i was in the end i started off i did the full thing i started doing triathlons when i was in my late 
sort of mid to late teens and started off with all the short distance stuff and had a bit of a shot at seeing if I could make the Great Britain team to go to the Olympics in the early 2000s, but wasn't wasn't good enough to make the cut there. So at that point, I moved into a bit of off-road triathlon called Xterra and also Ironman and longer course stuff, which I then did for a few years. Yeah, and those events can just be notoriously long. I've I've had a very brief, some brief experiences with triathlon over the years. Uh, I, I'm more of a do athlete, to be honest, because I sink like a rock in the water, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like most runners might. But um, you know, the the run bike run format definitely aids the runner in me. But um, you know, when you're doing some of these off road triathlons, even the short ones take a long time. I, I think the sprint triathlon, I a couple I did took take well over an hour. So when you're doing some of the longer stuff, the off-road stuff, how long are you out there for? I think Xterra from memory would have been somewhere between the sort of broadly between three and four hours for that kind of event. So you're, you're probably in, if you're comparing it to running, you're in kind of marathon to short ultra distance territory for a lot of people in terms of the time you spend out there for these things. Because I think cyclists, triathletes, runners, we all have slightly different versions of what's long really you know because for a triathlete a short race would be an hour to two hours probably whereas for a runner you know well i guess runners you know short endurance race could be as little as 15 minutes if you're a fast 5k runner or something so for me it was mainly yeah racing two two hours upwards two two to ten hours was my kind of bracket for racing most of the time yeah. And in distances like that are not really distances, but just time periods like that, when you're exercising at a, a fairly high intensity, I'm sure hydration becomes even more important for you. Um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is the fact that, you know, hydration is one of these issues that I think a lot of athletes think they understand like me, I think I understand hydration, but of course that doesn't mean we actually do understand it. You know, it's like kind of like a runner, once came to me and, and told me that he was going to fuel his marathon on adrenaline. And I just thought that was a terrible idea. You don't understand how adrenaline works. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you were thinking about this topic uh, and you were talking to a group of, of runners who didn't really know much about hydration, what don't most people understand about hydration that you wish they would? Oh, that's a good, that's a really good question. Uh, I think that hydration has to an extent been overcomplicated over the years and there's it's been overcomplicated and there's been loads of conflicting information out there about hydration and what then happens is people people disconnect with the the debate that's going on because one minute it seems like you know we've had this debate in in hydration around many years ago athletes were told not to drink really if they could help it then we kind of flip-flopped all the way to athletes should drink as much as they can and kind of, you know, almost overhydrate. And then we've got this debate where it goes, well, you should just listen to your instincts and drink to thirst. And, and people want a, a soundbite. They want a quick answer. And the thing about hydration and whether, you know, how much attention you need to pay, for, pay to it and, um, you know, what you need to understand about it is, is entirely dependent on your individual situation. So it needs, so, I'm not really answering your question very directly, but I think what people need to do with hydration is approach it from their individual standpoint and their standpoint only. Don't look for a, a quick one size fits all answer because there's not one. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And uh, I like your description of uh, the emphasis on hydration and how, you know, at first it was completely de-emphasized. You know, I remember you know, I have a, a old college coach who was kind of, uh, you know, old, very old school, very traditional. He would brag about how he would only have a glass of water before all of his marathons, you know, back in the, the 80s. And, you know, he was just that kind of thinker about the sport. And, and I'm not taking anything away from that. It was kind of a time capsule almost. But, you know, I remember back in, I want to say around 2009, 2010, my sister-in-law ran the Chicago Marathon a year when it was incredibly hot. Several people, at least one, uh, if not two, died of hyponatremia, and there was a huge uh, push to get people hydrated. But then the backlash was these hyponatremia cases. And you know, I think there's another coach, Steve Magnus, who has a great mental model of thinking about these issues and how 
the pendulum swings from one extreme to the other, but eventually it settles in the middle where it belongs with a more nuanced take. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd agree entirely. I've read a lot of Steve's stuff and chatted to him in the past before. And he, he has a great perspective because we do get these pendulum swings. We get people, it's, we've, we've seen it, um, in running. A great example is the shoe debate, you know, cushioned shoes, heavily cushioned and supportive shoes. And then we pendulum swing all the way out to like running barefoot. And then we start to come back again, you know, to, and, and now we've got more, more cushioned and more padded shoes with carbon fiber springs and different foam in them and that sort of thing. And there always seems to be a, an extreme view out there. And that's what gets the media coverage and that's what gets the hype. But actually you're dead right that the, the nuanced middle ground where it's all a bit gray and it's all a bit individual and situation dependent is where the answers lie but you've got to be prepared to kind of go scrabbling around in that area and do some digging as opposed to just joining one camp at either end. Andy, I can't put a clip of nuance and reasoned thinking of the podcast. That's <laughs> going to get a lot of, a lot of clicks here and downloads. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's the downside. It takes a long time to explain to people these things because people do, you know, and I was, I was one of them. So, you know, I used, when I was racing triathlon, this was seriously, this was back in the late nineties, early 2000. And the, the good, the, the solid message there was dehydration could trip you up. So you need to drink quite a lot, you know, drink effectively as much as you can to stave off dehydration. That'll help you maintain performance. And being the type of athlete that I was, and I'm sure, you know, you as a runner and lots of people listening will be able to sympathize with this. You know, if you tell an athlete who's really motivated and serious that if they do something, it will make them faster, they'll kind of 10 times that because that's just the kind of people we are. You know, if it's like drinking one bottle is going to help me, then I'll actually drink five because that should be five times better. And I, and I did exactly what you mentioned earlier and drank myself into a state of hyponatremia a couple of times where, where you over consume drinks, you know, water or very sort of low sodium sports drinks, dilute your blood down and end up in a real state. I, I often ended up in the medical tent, lots of cramps, um, in a real, in a real struggle, you know, just having a struggle, um, because of overhydration rather than ironically dehydration or underhydration. It's interesting to see the pendulum swing, not only from one extreme to the other, kind of in the broader media, in the running community, but also at an individual level. You know, I think sometimes all of us will overemphasize one thing in our training. And you're absolutely right about runners being type A. They want to, you know, if something's good, they're going to do it 10x. And, yeah. you know, I think uh, mileage is a great example. More is better. Let's just keep running more and more every single week. But of course, you know, there's some gray area there. We have to uh, understand and appreciate that nuance because that is what's going to make us into better athletes. Definitely. Yeah. With, with hydration, the nuance is all around the, the fact that hydration is something of a balancing act. You know, we need, there is definitely, if we can, one thing that most people can agree on when we talk about hydration, even when I talk to other scientists and other practitioners who have different views is that there's a level of underhydration or dehydration when we sweat enough and we lose enough fluid and enough electrolytes that at some point we hit problems related to that. And those problems are often to do with, you know, reduced cardiovascular function because your, your heart and um, your vascular systems under more strain because your blood gets thicker and thicker when you're getting more dehydrated and you dissipate heat less well so you overheat and it, you get this sort of downward spiral with a, a level of dehydration and electrolyte depletion and then if you go way to the other end we know that there's this huge problem of hyponatremia if we overconsume fluid and overwhelm the body with too much too much fluid not enough sodium and dilute the blood and, and, co and create all the problems there so there's it's possible to not drink enough and it's possible to over drink but that gap in the middle and where and how much you kind of need to drink and what you need to drink and what electrolytes you need to replace and all that kind of thing. That's the bit where it's a bit individual. It's a bit in, in it's depends on your individual physiology. And obviously it depends on the type of running you're doing, the duration that you're running for, the environment that you're running in, all those kind of factors. And that's where it all gets relatively complicated. But at the same time, if you understand your situation and some facts about yourself, then you can start to unpick it and get in the right zone. 
Well, let's do that. Let's maybe talk about a couple different scenarios and talk about the factors that would impact how much hydration a a hypothetical runner might need in those situations. So, you know, when you're talking about uh, the topic of hydration and how it needs to be personalized, what's a good starting point? Where do we start this kind of journey of self-discovery? Is it with our sweat rate or something else? I think, honestly, the place to start is looking at the sort of volume and duration of your activities. Because if you're a, a, a reasonably casual runner or someone who's running for fun, running relatively short distances, if most of your runs are less than an hour and you're not racing over longer distances or accumulating loads and loads of training within a week, then a lot of the time your hydration needs are quite simple and will be taken care of by listening to your body, following your instincts and, you know, hydrating on the basis of thirst, making sure you're drinking a reasonable amount of water. And, and, you know, maybe if, if you live in somewhere hot or if you have a high sweat rate, a bit of salt on your food to make sure you're replacing some of the sodium you're losing. But outside of that, it, it doesn't need overcomplicating. And I think that's where people have been missold because just because you're a runner, because you run, you know, three, four times a week and do yeah, 10k or five six miles at a time it doesn't mean suddenly mean that you need a hydration plan and a strategy and all this kind of stuff you like your body's really good at telling you what it needs and when you get a bit thirsty you drink and you know that's fine when when you start to go up the the, the mileage when you're training every single day sometimes twice a day when you when you're doing like marathons or ultras or you're training somewhere that it's hot or humid or where you are at altitude when you're you know losing a bit more fluid in those situations you start to step towards the place where a plan is a good idea and one of the one of the easiest things to do to begin with is really just to start to get a handle on your on your sweat rate as you mentioned and you can measure your own sweat rate really really easily and i do it quite frequently um and what you do is before you go out for a run you step on the scales with as little clothing on as you can get away with you then go for a run try not to if if it's a run where you're not drinking and eating that's good because you don't have any corrections to make you then get back take off any sweaty clothing that's absorbed sweat weigh yourself again and the difference between those two body weights is pretty much what you've lost in fluid and for me just to give you an example you know when i go out it's about um it's about 17 or 18 degrees in the uk at the moment which is celsius which is probably what's that like that must be in the 60s 70s fahrenheit maybe so it's not it's not it's not cold but it's not super hot if i go out and run for an hour in the morning i'm i'm losing generally somewhere between um probably about 1.8 and 2.2 pounds in sweat um that that's about my sweat rate per hour. So like two pounds, 2.2 pounds per hour, which in metric system is about a liter per hour. And that's pretty normal. Um, and I normally find that even without massively thinking about it, if I just you know live as I normally do throughout that day, get up the next morning, weigh myself again, my weight would have normalized and I'm, I'm back to normal. The difference for me comes when I go out and do a long run. And I'm, recently I've been running up to close to two hours on a Saturday morning a little bit later in the day when it's a bit warmer, running a bit harder, I can lose in that session, you know, closer to sort of, sort of, you know, five, maybe even six pounds in body weight if I'm not careful. And at that point, I really start to need to, you know, be proactive about what I'm drinking before, during and after so that I get through that session in good shape and then recover well afterwards. So it's a lot of it is about that assessing your magnitude of of sweat loss assessing your magnitude of risk before you start worrying about diving too deep into anything more specific yeah i i like how you're keeping it generally simple for those people who are not doing more extreme kinds of runs you know if you're running for two hours or less this seems like a really good approach to take it's fairly simple you can use a scale and and measure your fluid loss and and that's a pretty simple way of doing it i like that and if if you if you don't mind me yeah sorry sorry i was there's a bit of a delay there just i was talking over you but i was just going to say on our website on precisionhydration.com there's a free there's a free um blog where you can download a spreadsheet to put your sweat rate information into and it helps you work out your your sweat output in different sessions and things so 
we, people can definitely hit that up and, and you know pop their information into there and it and it's it makes it real simple for you it works out your sweat rate per hour in different conditions and stuff and oh, that's great. a good place to start logging some data uh, and what we'll often do is people want to email that into us, which they can do through the website. We're always happy to kick ideas around with people about, you know, whether their sweat rates are looking high or low or normal and what that, what that might mean for them to help them individualize it. How does uh, salt and other electrolytes work into this equation? Because I know total volume of fluid loss is important, but I know some runners also tend to have much saltier sweat and they're losing many more of these electrolytes, you know, per pound or, or, or liter of fluid that they're losing. So how, how do you think about that issue? Well, that, that was really my gateway into the, the world of precision hydration. And the reason I started the business was because when I was competing as a triathlete, a doctor friend of mine looked at the, looked at my kit and clothing after a race where I'd had a really bad performance and he, he could actually see the salt caked on my skin and on my kit. And if any of anyone who's listens to marathon runner or, or ultra marathon runner, they'll have seen that on people at, at races. And, um, the doctor, Dr. Jutley said to me, I think you're losing a lot of salt, Andy. And I think that's a big part of the problem. So we should test this, this the salt levels in your sweat. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I've never heard of that. So off I went to the hospital, got my sweat sodium levels tested and sure enough the doctor was right they were really really high so to put that in perspective i lose about 1.8 grams of sodium per liter of sweat so in every 2.2 pounds of sweat i'm losing nearly two grams of sodium which is like a really decent amount of salt by contrast some people at the lower end could be losing one tenth of that so they could only be losing 200 milligrams of sodium in every liter of sweat and the average is about 900 milligrams. So I'm kind of twice as salty as average, basically, when it comes to sweat. That's so interesting. Um, can you put that salt in perspective for us? So, for example, uh, you know, the average is 900 milligrams of sweat, uh, I'm sorry, of salt lost per liter of uh, sweat that you have. How many, how many how many milligrams of salt is typically recommended that we consume in a given day? Is this like 10% of our salt intake? Is it 50%? Can you put that into context for us? Sure. Yeah, I think um, so. The one important distinction is that we we sometimes use the term salt and sodium interchangeably, but actually it's not quite correct because salt is sodium chloride, NaCl, which is a, a compound made up of sodium and, and chloride. And it's about 40%, it's just under 40% sodium and 60% chloride. So in every gram of salt that we lose, we're actually losing 400 milligrams of sodium. So when I talk about losing um, milligrams of sodium, the actual milligrams of salt I'm losing are, are way, way higher because it's only 40% of it. But if we talk sodium only, because that's the important bit for fluid balance, I think in the US, I'd have to double check, but I'm pretty sure the recommended sodium consumption per per day for an adult is something like 4,000 milligrams or four grams. And the interesting thing about athletes is if I, if I'm sweating close to two, two grams of sodium per hour during a hard workout and I can easily accumulate two or three hours of exercise in a, in a day or in a weekend, I can be sweating out well in excess of the the daily sodium intake within a couple of hours so the whilst the the sort of sodium guidelines are designed for or are recommended for good health for individuals who are perhaps more on the sedentary side when you're exercising and sweating a lot and working out those sodium guidelines can be woefully inadequate for what you're losing in a, in a few hours of, of training or competing so it's really, it's really interesting to me that we have these kind of very set guidelines, which everybody is allegedly you know, advised to follow. When actually, for athletes, the amount of salt you could lose, you know, if you were doing, if you're doing an ultra distance race and out there for ten or twelve hours, you could quite easily lose, you know, twelve times or eight times the amount of sodium that you that you're supposed to eat in a day if you're not careful. Wow! And so we have to adjust intake quite quite dramatically in situations. It's just wild to think about how much sodium could potentially be lost, especially um, especially out here. I'm thinking more specifically in Colorado, the altitude is higher, uh, the air is a lot drier. I think the other day the humidity was 11%, which wow. is not super comfortable. No. Um, 
you know, do these more arid, dry climates, do they force you to consume more sodium because, you know, more uh, uh, fluid is just being evaporated off your skin? It's an interesting question. I would actually say probably not more than you would need in a really hot and really humid environment, actually. And that's that's because the good thing about lower humidity, although 11% is really low, and that's like you said, it's not actually very pleasant when it gets that low. But in, generally speaking, in lower humidity, sweat evaporates faster. So you, and sweating is obviously there to cool the body by evaporation. So if, if sweat can evaporate faster, you can sweat a little bit less for the same cooling effect. So the, the, the experience I've always had is I've often come to the US in sort of uh, February, March time around baseball spring training because we work with a lot of MLB teams and I'll visit Phoenix in Arizona, which is obviously hot and dry and I'll go running there and I'll sweat a lot, but I just, it, my clothes remain relatively dry and I get a little bit of salt crust on the skin. And then I'll go over to Florida, go to South Florida and over there it can be 10 degrees cooler, but the humidity is way, way higher. And actually you end up sweating quite a bit more in total because the sweat just drips off you and doesn't cool you down. So I would say at altitude and in, in dry air and dry environment, your requirement for fluid in general throughout the day can be a little bit higher, but specifically the toughest conditions for meeting your, your sweat losses are in hot and humid environments because that's when you're going to sweat the absolute most. Well, that's good to know. I'm someone who grew up on the East Coast of the United States in Massachusetts, Connecticut, in the Maryland, D.C. area, and, you know, all very humid places. Yeah. And then when I moved out here to Colorado in 2014, uh, it was a real adjustment, not just with the altitude, but really the the dry air, the strength of the sun up here at altitude. It quite debilitating if you're trying to run anything at high intensity. Uh, and so I've, I've had to make some changes with how I uh, hydrate and bring fluids with me out on longer runs, especially if I'm going up into the mountains where, you know, it's even drier out there, uh, just because it's, it's such a more challenging environment. Yeah, I've noticed that when I go to, if I come up to Colorado, if I, if I come to Denver or Boulder and go running in the hills up there and all the rest of it, the first few days, if I'm not careful, I'll get cracked dry lips and dry skin and all that kind of thing, just because you're losing so much moisture to the air constantly, which you just, you're not normally doing it at higher humidity and sort of environments. It's pretty tough. Yeah, when you know uh, a gust of wind, when that feels like a blow dryer, yeah. you know just <laughs> you, you need you need a glass of water and some air conditioning. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, that's true. Now, Andy, I grew up with a very simple way of determining whether or not you were hydrated. It was the pee test. You know, if your urine is yellow or darker, then you need to drink some water. If it's clear or maybe a pale straw yellow colored, then you know you're hydrated. You're ready to run. What's your take on the P test? Is, is that outdated and should we update it with something new or is that fairly, uh, I, would, I would say, effective for maybe the, the less extreme workouts and runs that we go on? I think, I think the P test is, is a good one to have in, the, in your armory, but it's not, it's not always totally accurate. So I would say that the, the time to look at your P if you're a runner, if there is a good time to look at your P, it's the first first thing in the morning when you get up because most of us when you get up in the morning one of the first things you do is go to the bathroom and then if you look at your pee then the color of, of the first urine that you produce in the day is a reasonably good indicator as to whether you've got up fairly well hydrated or not that day um, because your body's had all night to sort of recalibrate move fluid from the extracellular to the intracellular space or vice versa and, and get everything in equilibrium so if you wake up and, you, and your urine is dark, and particularly if you feel a little bit thirsty as well, that's a pretty decent sign that you are, you know, potentially a little bit dehydrated and, and onboarding some fluids before you go training would be a really good idea. The problem with looking at your pee later in the day is that every, you, you start to eat and drink things and do things which can kind of confound your body's urine output. So if, if for instance, you know, you have a bottle of water and a coffee, then that water plus the diuretic effect of the caffeine in the coffee can then make you go for a pee quite soon after, which might be totally clear and look like you're really well hydrated. But actually what, what's happening there is your body's just dumping the vast majority of the fluid you've just taken on board. 
So you have to be a little bit careful if you do draw too many distinctions from that throughout the day. But first thing in the morning, it's a, it's, it's a decent test to, to give you an idea of your hydration status. Does that mean that your uh, that, that if you drink too much water all at once, then you're not really going to get as hydrated as if you were to slowly kind of take sips of that water over a longer time period? Definitely. And that's one of the big problems we see with athletes kind of pre, pre-workout or pre-race and especially before hot races. I read a really interesting um, scientific paper not long ago where they took some blood samples from athletes at the start of the Spartathon in Greece, which is a big, big ultra marathon over there, very hot conditions. And one of the markers they looked at was they measured um, blood sodium levels, which is a marker of hyponatremia. And they found that nearly 10% of the field were actually stood on the start line for this major ultramarathon, a little bit hyponatremic. And the only reason they could come up with for the, for why that would be occurring is because we know that runners, you know, before a hot race will tend to drink and drink and drink lots of extra water because they feel like they want to start hydrated. And actually it can kind of do you a disservice rather than anything good because you, you end up taking on a load of fluid, peeing a lot of it out, peeing a lot of sodium out as well. And you end up with lower blood sodium levels and, and potentially less well hydrated. The, the way to actually hydrate before a, a hard workout or a race that's actually more, way more effective is to take a much smaller volume of a drink, which has got lots of sodium in it. Because what that does is that we call it preloading. And what it does is you, you take a, a strong sodium drink. It, it goes from the stomach into the gut and the sodium moves from the, the gut into the bloodstream and that pulls water with it and holds it there in the blood and the extracellular fluid where you want it so that you've got a kind of extra little bit of a reservoir for when you start. So if, if you are feeling a bit dehydrated or you, you are concerned about getting to the start of some big session or big race properly hydrated, then the idea of preloading with some sodium and fluid in a, in a small way is way better than just drinking loads and loads of water. Is, is there a practical way of doing that? Do you recommend just uh, sprinkling some table salt in a glass of water or is there a better way? There's the, 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 you can do it. You can achieve the effect with salt and water. But the problem with it is because you've got to make the, the solution really quite salty. If you use table salt, it's pretty offensive to drink. And for the sort of um, mathematically minded, we, we're looking at somewhere around 1500 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid. So about 1500 milligrams in 32 ounces of, of water. Now we tend to do that when we make a, a drink called pH 1500, which is a, a strong drink made, um, sort of partially for that purpose. And we use sodium citrate in that drink as opposed to sodium chloride because sodium citrate tastes a lot less salty and a lot less offensive it doesn't kind of taste like you're drinking a bit of um, horrible seawater so to a strong and, and to again to put that in perspective against what you would typically see out there as like normal sports drinks uh, most people are familiar with like a gatorade or a powerade or those kind of products they they all tend to have about 500 milligrams of sodium per liter so they're way then really not strong enough for the process of preloading they would need to be about three times stronger yeah I, I think hearing some of these numbers and thinking about how much sodium is actually required to uh, you know make sure that the water kind of more stays in your body and you don't just urinate it out and how much sodium you actually lose in your sweat I think that's you know I, I know for at least me right now uh, I'm almost a little bit taken aback by how much sodium that really is. Because I think, you know, at least here in the U.S., I grew up thinking that salt was bad for you. We should not put salt in our food. And I've moved away from that because it, it doesn't seem like that's the case anymore. And science has evolved. But I, I just want to kind of put that out there and, you know, just note that it, it does seem like it's way too much sodium. But it seems like from an athletic perspective, you know, what we need is far different than the general population. I think that's the key. It's not that, you know, what we don't want to be arguing for is that sodium is suddenly, you know, sodium has been bad for all these years and all of a sudden we now think it's good and we should take more of it. It's, it's all in proportion to the amount that you lose because as someone who does a fair bit of training and sweats a lot 
and I have very either high sweat rate and I also have a high sodium loss in my sweat. I find that if I abstain from sighting my food or not using stronger sports drinks before and after hard sessions, then it affects my performance. It affects my, my health, my mood. You know, it, it makes me, you know, it, it affects me in a very negative way because I can become sodium depleted quite easily. So what we're, what we're always arguing for is kind of, um, well, uh, a balanced intake based on what you're losing. And the interesting thing is for a lot of athletes, a lot of runners, a lot of sports people in general, you know, our salt, our salt requirements can be three or four times higher than the average person quite easily. And kind of getting a handle on that and experimenting and not feeling bad about if, if salt tastes good because your body has fantastic self-regulatory systems for, you know, if you crave salt, especially after longer training sessions, that can be a really good sign that you're becoming sodium depleted. And if you have some salt on some food after a, after an event or after a training session and it tastes fantastic, that's just your body's way of telling you, okay, well, you know, this is what I need. So I'm going to take it in and, and restock. We, there was an amazing study done a few years ago where they took a bunch of people, measured their sweat loss during exercise sessions. And at the same time, they gave them different soups to choose from to eat afterwards as a, as a kind of, um, a thank you for doing the session. And what they did was they put different levels of salt in the soups and measured how much the people ate and drank and consumed based on what they were losing. And they found that the people that lost more salt massively preferred without being told the soups with more salt in them because they, their body was kind of crying out for what was in there. So that's, so listening to your body and if, and not getting a preconceived idea that, you know, using a salt shake or adding salt to your food is bad can be a really good thing because it kind of frees you up to experiment and, and listen to your instincts. And there's a, there was another really good paper written a few years ago called the importance of salt in the athlete's diet, which just kind of set the tone for this argument around, you know, individualizing salt intake based on loss and requirement is makes far more sense than just having a, a straight out blanket recommendation that the kind of the, the one size fits no one approach. No one size fits no one approach. I like that. And you're making me feel less guilty about craving Lay's potato chips after my summer long runs, which is something I, I pretty typically uh, will crave. Oh, but- I'm the same. I can I can smash a bag of potato chips or you know, salted <laughs> peanuts after a run. No, no problem at all, especially in the summer. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it or, or thirsty even. Um, Andy, I want to talk a little bit more about hyponatremia because this is almost like the the opposite side of this coin. Um, and, and you mentioned that really fascinating study that that noted that 10% of these athletes on the starting line of this big race were uh, beginning to show some signs of hyponatremia. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, how can we avoid this? I know uh, adding salt to our food and consuming water with a higher sodium content in it is, is one good approach. But what would you tell the runner who is about to, you know, go for a 20 mile run in the summer? or they're getting ready for a hot weather marathon or ultra marathon. And they obviously want to stay hydrated, but, you know, do so in in a safe way. How would you have this athlete think about this? I think the most important thing to point out is that the, the principal way to prevent hyponatremia has got less to do with what you intake and more to do with what you don't intake. And the, the way to avoid it primarily is not to over drink because it's, overconsumption of water or very any drink which has got very low sodium content is the primary way that you you cause hyponatremia if the, the way to think about it is like this is that if assuming that stood here right now at the start of something you're you're well you're you know you're in your body's in balance because homeostasis does its wonderful thing and keeps everything in balance in the body and your blood sodium levels should be between about 135 and 145 millimoles per liter that's just the level that everyone's a, a kept at now, when you start to sweat, you lose sweat from that blood plasma, but because you your body reclaims some of the sodium that you lose in the sweat, you always lose proportionally more water than you do sodium. So gradually, as you as you sweat and, and dehydrate and don't drink anything, your your blood's always going to get more salty rather than less salty. So hyponatremia is not a problem. Then, of course, you can put in a little bit of water and start to top that up, and it maintains equilibrium. 
and you kind of still don't become hypernatremic, but you just remain hydrated. And it's only when we get to the point that you start to drink way more than you're sweating out that you risk hypernatremia. So the first thing, that's why a lot of the guidance to, to runners in recent years has switched away from, you know, drinking to a plan or to drinking to thirst. Because when you drink and respond to the dictates of thirst alone, it's unusual that you would become hyponatremic. So I think for a lot of runners, especially in anything, any shorter events, any time when sweat losses aren't really high, that's great advice to follow and, and you won't go too far wrong with that. When you're talking about your, your runners who are going out for longer or in hot conditions when sweat losses can be really high, even though we're losing more fluid than, than sodium at that point, proportionally, the net losses can, of sodium can still start to mount up. And at some point, and for me, as an individual who loses a lot of sweat and salt, this happens after about 90 minutes to two hours, I start to get benefit from taking in a reasonable amount of sodium as well as fluid to keep everything topped up. And so I would say if you were doing a 20 mile run in the summer, there's a few things that you can do. The first one is don't overdrink before the start, but make sure you have a strong sodium based drink, 1500 milligrams or so per liter and, and about 16 to 20 ounces of that in the hour before you go out, because that's going to top you up. Make sure that you're, you've got plenty of electrolytes on board and plenty of fluid on board. Once you get into the run, it depends on a lot on the, a lot of the um, weather conditions, but you might, um, you know, you might drink just water and to thirst if it's cool, but if it was hot or humid or you're losing or you're working really hard and sweating a lot, you're going to kind of drink to a plan, which is based a little bit more on what your, your level of fluid loss is. And for me, I tend to find on a longish run like that, if I can match, if I can get drink about 50% of what I'm know I'm going to lose in sweat, then that's enough to maintain my performance. So I would, I would typically aim to drink somewhere around sort of, you know, 12 to 16 ounces per hour. If I think I'm going to sweat out, you know, a liter or 32 ounces per hour. And then I know that that's kind of just enough to keep me above dehydration, but well, well away from hyponatremia so it's all about finding that sweet spot in the middle and not the, the the way that people develop hyponatremia predominantly is that they go a little bit overboard with the drinking and then they see their performance start to decline and then they begin to think oh maybe it's dehydration that's causing this when actually it's overhydration and that results in drinking more and they double down on the wrong on the wrong side of the equation right i think it's this fear of dehydration that drives people toward hyponatremia because they think more water is good just as a blanket statement. Um, and I remember reading a study a while back that showed actually the fastest marathoners are the ones who lost the most water weight during the race. And that's probably just a coincidence, uh, but probably goes to show that, you know, you can lose some, some water weight during a race and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh yeah, for sure. I think, I think, you know, you've, those studies that you're talking about there have been you know, replicated a number of times. And we see the elite marathon runners because their metabolic rate's so high. They're the, the guys at the front of the marathon are running at under five minutes a mile. They're, you know, some of them, they're small, but they can still sweat over two liters an hour. And the, and the faster you're running, ironically, the less you can probably drink because, because it's hard when you're breathing that hard. So these guys do lose an incredible amount of fluid, you know, and, and get to the finish line in a very fast time. Um, and, and so anywhere between, you know, we typically would say for, for the average runner, anywhere between sort of one and 4% of body weight loss during a marathon is probably the zone in which you're going to want to finish. Um, you know, you don't, if you're finishing at the same weight you started, you've probably over drunk or overeaten. But what you don't want to do is let that dehydration or that deterioration in body weight go so far that you, you fall off a cliff. So it's just, yeah, it's finding that sweet spot in that zone. Yeah. And, and up to 4% or 5% of your, of your body weight lost is actually fairly substantial. I mean, for a 150 pound runner, losing 5% of your body weight is, you know, that's what, seven and a half pounds. That's yeah. really substantial. Yeah. And it's that the, the thing to mention about that is, is that in my experience, the, the level of sort of fluid loss that an individual can tolerate is quite, is quite individual. It's also a little bit dependent of, or very dependent actually on the kind of starting 
body weight being, you know, optimal. So I used to start an Ironman triathlon probably two to three pounds heavier than I would normally be on a, on any given day at that period of training because you've tapered down, you've got full glycogen stores, you've got lots of fluid and sodium on board. So you start with a bit of a, a cushion. You know, if you're already starting a little bit low, then losing 5% from a low start point is probably going to be really bad. But I think if you're starting a percent up, then dropping three or 4%, you know, in reality is probably more like dropping two or 3% and, you know, seems to work, but it is highly individual. And I think people have got to, got to have the confidence to do a bit of individual trial and error to find out what, what they can get away with. For sure. And I think a lot of endurance runners are familiar with the concept of carb loading before a marathon or an ultra marathon. Do you recommend any kind of sodium loading beforehand? If you know you might be out there for, you know, three hours or longer, should we be loading up on some extra salt either the morning of the race or in the several days leading up to the race? Yes, yeah, another good question. I think I don't see for most athletes, except for people who are salt sensitive, hypertensive, you know, with high blood pressure that is related to salt consumption. I don't see any downside to taking a little bit of extra salt on your food in the two or three days leading up to a race. Now your body's pretty good at at self-regulation. So if you eat lots more than you need, you'll end up just weighing a lot of it out because your kidneys will excrete it. But that's, it's probably better to have a a tiny bit more rather than a tiny bit less because you do want to start with your body well stocked up with sodium before, before the gun goes. But you won't, you're not, it's not as easy to do as with carb loading in terms of the storage capacity is not necessarily there. There's a level that you can reach. And then beyond that, you can't really boost it artificially by much. The one thing we do suggest is that protocol I mentioned earlier of drinking a really strong electrolyte in the last hour or so before the start because that does that final little bit of top up so that extra bit of sodium that extra bit of fluid if you take that on board you can often hold on to it without needing to pee like you see a lot of runners doing queuing for the porta potties before the start because they've just drunk loads of water if you have a strong sodium drink you can often avoid that hold on to that fluid and then you'll hit the line you know with a, a nice empty stomach but fully well hydrated I like that approach. It seems sensible. It seems like, you know, it, while it's easy to carb load, we can just add a little bit of extra salt uh, and have a sodium rich beverage before our event. And that seems like it's enough. Yeah. Um, now, maybe one more topic that I wanted to, to cover with you is the, the issue of cramping. And, you know, I'm admittedly not someone who has dealt with a lot of cramping during races, whether that's half marathons, marathons, triathlons, you know, trail races here in the mountains in, in Colorado, um, the steeplechase, which I ran in college. I mean, that's probably not, not long enough, but I, I just don't really have a good personal frame of reference for cramping. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the relationship of uh, hydration, dehydration, and electrolytes and cramping. Because I know a lot of runners, you know, they get to mile 20, 22 of a marathon, all of a sudden their calves start cramping up, their hamstrings start cramping up. And, you know, the prevailing wisdom is either I'm dehydrated or I have low sodium stores. So how do we think about this issue? Yeah, I think, you know, based on your experience, Jason, the the sort of this is where me and you have had totally different experiences, because uh, as a we often say that in sport, there are, you know, there are crampers and there are non crampers, you know, there's and I was a full on cramper whenever I raced. It was it was often in the heat. Oh, well, more often than not that I would suffer really bad cramps, if not during the race, then sometime soon afterwards. And so I took a really you know, keen interest in trying to understand that. And for me, it was very clear that when I got my electrolyte and fluid balance wrong and either overhydrated with just water or took in insufficient salt, then cramps would follow. Um, and I know a lot, a, lot, a lot of other athletes have found that that similar relationship and there's never been the interesting thing about that is although there's a whole there's a massive ton of anecdotal evidence to support the fact that electrolyte depletion hyponatremia or or in in fact the other way you know severe dehydration can all lead to cramping no one's kind of really come up with a, a a mechanistic theory to explain exactly why the theory goes that it's something to do with fluid shift in the intra 
into an extracellular compartment that that puts pressure on nerve endings, which causes muscles to cramp, but it's never really been satisfactorily proven. It's a really, it's a really hard thing to test in a lab, both from an ethical point of view and also from a practical point of view, because we know that most athletes, if they're going to cramp, they often cramp in competition and trying to recreate the scenarios where people cramp is reliably is really, really hard to do. There have been some studies recently where a couple of labs have managed to elicit cramps in people's feet by putting electrodes on their feet. I can't remember if it was their feet or their calves, but they basically put um, increasing strength of electrical impulses into the muscles until they managed to stimulate a cramp. And then they tried to do that after giving them a drink, which was high in sodium on one day or a placebo drink another day. And those studies have tended to show that when you give people adequate hydration with plenty of sodium and fluids, the, the threshold frequency for, for them starting to get cramps is significantly higher. So that kind of plays to the theory that um, dehydration or electrolyte disturbances could be related to increased incidence of cramping. But on the other side, you've got all these theories which say, well, how can cramps be caused by dehydration when we see so many people cramp at times when they've not sweated a lot or when their their sodium stores are obviously not low and i think there's that's where there's been a competing theory come across um which is called the um the sort of neuromuscular hypothesis which looks at at fatigue and overstimulation of um of alpha motor neurons in the spinal cord being the thing that precipitates cramps and what makes what always makes me laugh about these this debate is it's exactly like the old you know overhydration underhydration debate. It's like there's two camps. You either believe that cramps are caused by dehydration and sodium depletion, or you believe that they're caused by fatigue. And very few people seem to be able to embrace the idea that maybe both of those components have a role to play, because when we're 20 miles into a marathon, as per your example, and you're you've sweated a lot and you've lost a lot of sodium and you're also fatigued and you've been working your muscles really, really hard because you're trying to go for a PB. It's kind of like a perfect storm that could create muscle cramps. And because at the moment we don't have a great mechanistic theory as to what happens, we only have, we have various different strategies we can try to use to combat them. And they include, you know, making sure you're adequately hydrated, you're taking plenty of sodium, that you're training for the pace you want to run at, that you're, you know, that you're conditioned for, for the type of activity that you're doing and so on. And all of those things then come together and hopefully help you to you know, manage the cramps in some way. Yeah, I, I have sort of taken a multidisciplinary approach to this, I, I guess, probably because I'm a liberal, liberal arts uh, <laughs> major here when, from my education background. But, you know, I really do think it's likely a combination of all the different things that you had just mentioned, because, you know, like we were talking before, you know, all these things are, are issues that exist on a spectrum and very rarely is something one thing, but not the other. There's usually some shades of gray and nuance in there that uh, we should really appreciate and uh, take into consideration. And, and so it sounds like this is an issue of personal experimentation. Do you think runners should be trying new things when, say, they're going for a long run with some goal marathon pace work in there so that they can hopefully uh, find a solution that will prevent these cramps on race day. Definitely. I think, you, you know, you've hit the nail on the head with like personal experimentation, but it, but the, the key thing about that is making it organized and giving it some structure so that, you know, if you're, we, we often get people that come to us and say, Oh, I've been battling with cramps for years and I've tried taking electrolytes and tried taking sodium and it's just not worked. Um, and then when you actually unpick what they're doing, they might have gone from, you know, drinking just water to drinking a sports drink with a little bit of electrolyte in, but they have no conception of the fact that, that the amount of electrolyte they might have needed was three or four times what they were actually consuming. So they've got no frame of reference. So we try and help people to then say, okay, well, let's actually start off. What, what is a, what is a, you know, we've been taking a low amount of sodium to try and combat this. But what is a, a moderate? What is a high amount? And then how can we try injecting that into some of your training in an organized way, actually documenting it, recording it in your training diary, what you've done, looking at the results and then testing and adjusting from there. Because 
and it, I mean, I was certainly guilty of this in the in the past, but a lot of athletes love to love to sort of just try something out once and then either embrace it or dismiss it based on very little repeatable evidence. It's just kind of a one hit and it either works or it doesn't. Whereas actually we, what we've got to do is yeah, experiment, try different things, try them in an organized and structured manner, record the results and then, and then iterate very slowly and subtly from there. And I think if you, if you're prepared to go through that process and do that, you can often get on top of these problems like cramping. I love it. I love it. I think uh, for anyone who's dealing with cramps, uh, I think some of the strategies that we discussed today are going to be really helpful, particularly, you know, one of the big things that I'm taking away from this conversation, Andy, is that uh, number one, we all are an experiment of one, and we really do have to find what works for us individually. And also, if we do find ourselves in need of salt, sodium in a race, uh, we probably need more than we think we do. And, and I think that's a revelation for me because uh, I just never realized how much salt that we needed compared with the average non-athlete. And, and for me, I think I'm going to take that into consideration, especially when I'm up in the mountains, you know, running for two, two and a half hours in that kind of a dry climate. Uh, not that I've really ignored the sodium or, or thought it was bad for me, but you know, I'm, uh, you know, have a coffee and a water before I go and, and I'm fine with maybe a very small breakfast, but I think I'm going to take that, uh, the sodium considerations, uh, to heart a little bit more seriously now. It, it'd be interesting to hear how you get on with that, because I think the difference is a lot of athletes can go out and we can all go out and do what we do on the routines that we've built up. But the next level on from that is like, how well do you perform? How well do you recover and how good do you feel when you're doing it? And for me, I competed at even got to a reasonable level for years without really getting to the bottom of this hydration thing. But when it mattered, it kept tripping me up. And that's why getting this information across to athletes, not the, the message here isn't like more sodium is good. It's if you need it, you need to sort of figure out if you're someone who needs it and you need to understand the magnitude of the numbers involved and then play around with those numbers. And if you're prepared to go through that process, you know, better performance is the outcome but it is having the patience and the the sort of the strength of mind to go through that process rather than just you know just carrying on as you are doing and thinking oh this is just too complicated for me so as, as a result one one thing that we've done as a business in the last few years is spent an increasing amount of time building out our the team who are in the office in the UK, who, who are answering emails and phone calls and, and now more recently doing video calls and that kind of thing with athletes to help them work through their individual circumstances. So if there's anyone who's, who's listening to this, who wants to, to do that, then if you hit precisionhydration.com, you can email us at hello at precisionhydration.com and you can even book a free, you know, um, video consultation with myself one of the sports science team then we'd be very happy to talk to you about your individual situation and, and figuring out what your needs are well i love it andy that's a great resource for runners and you know it kind of reminds me of that saying what got you here is not what's going to get you there so exactly if there's any runners here who are struggling with these things you know i think it's time for a different approach uh so andy thanks so much for being here i appreciate you discussing this, uh, you know, in the middle of this spectrum and talking more about the nuance, talking more about these shades of gray, uh, rather than, you know, I'm being one camp or the other. So I really do appreciate that. Um, now I know precisionhydration.com is your home base, your company's home base, but, uh, where else can we connect with you and find out more about what you're, what you're up to these days? Honestly, the best place is, th is through the website and signing up for our newsletter. We do a performance related newsletter most weeks and, um, that, that has some great stuff in there for runners. Um, lots of, lots of articles, not just about hydration, but about training. And we spend a lot of time discussing these kind of gray areas, you know, of, of performance and trying not to jump on or trying to point out the bandwagons that are going on and not jumping on those. Um, if anyone wants to, you know, converse with us directly definitely email is a great starting point that address hello at precisionhydration.com we'd love to hear from you and and you know strike up, strike up a conversation uh, and if anyone wants to try any of the products on precision hydration we've set up a code which is just strength running or one word which i think gives a 15 percent discount off people's first order so if anyone wants to try something after you know before or after chatting to us then they're very welcome to use that 
Well, great. Thanks, Andy. I didn't didn't even know you guys were setting up that code. So this is a surprise to me, but a great little gift here for the Strength Running Podcast community. So I appreciate that. And thanks so much for your time and expertise. No, really enjoyed chatting with you, Jason. Thanks very much for having me on. Jason here one more time before you leave today. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you found a lot of valuable nuggets in this conversation for you to apply to your training. It's summertime for most of us. So this is a great reminder of how important fluids are to your performance and recovery. And speaking of recovery, a big thanks to Naked Nutrition for helping make this episode possible. You can see them at nkdnutrition.com. They make high-quality supplements for athletes, and out of the nearly countless supplements that runners could take, protein is actually helpful and beneficial. After any big training session, especially a long run, workout, or race, it's critical to aid the recovery process with protein. Muscles get damaged when you run hard, and protein is what repairs them. Naked Nutrition has a vanilla grass-fed whey protein powder that I'm loving. It only has three ingredients, but if you want the unflavored version, you'll only have a single ingredient, whey protein. I love that simplicity, and the fact that they're third-party tested for contaminants, they don't have any additives, and the whey comes from grass-fed cows, and there's also a pea protein option for vegans. I'm also, for the first time in my life, taking a green supplement. This is basically a powder of broccoli, greens, grasses, and other vegetables to supplement your vegetable intake. It certainly does taste like grass, but I think that's the idea. (laughs) You can check out all of their products that are made in the USA at nkdnutrition.com. Okay, runners, that's all for me today. I'd like to thank you for being here. To everyone who has left a review for the podcast and Apple Music, thank you so much. You're the best. Those reviews keep me going. All right, we'll be in touch very soon. 